So my wife says it all the time, and it's beautiful. She, she always says you can't have a testimony without a test. Kind of feels like the biggest responsibility I have in my world right now is trying to be an awesome parent. Really, I believe forgiveness is more for us than it really is for the other person. I kind of firmly believe that everyone is capable of and deserving of empathy, but I do believe it is a muscle that you have to exercise. The full quote is, if you come to a great chasm in life, jump, it's not that far. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the imperfect experience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Imperfect Pod, where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposely. This week's episode guest is John Curry. John spent more than 22 years in the Marine Corps. Now he is the founder of Semper Savage, a kick-ass salad dressing and marinade company. However, we take more the angle of the Marine Corps talking about leadership, everything that goes into leading in the Marine Corps from a place of kindness and empathy. It's a really interesting conversation where we also talk about the German concept of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is the experience of pleasure, joy, or self-satisfaction that comes from learning or witnessing the troubles, failures, and humiliation of others. This is a concept that we think is pretty prominent right now in society, whether you want to call it cancel culture or something else. We're seeing this kind of schadenfreude Freude mentality take place in society. We also talk about, you know, quite transparently, some of the problems with uh, slavery and racism in the United States, him being in the United States very briefly at the end. But uh, I want to thank John for being so honest and vulnerable. This is the first time that he said he's had this kind of conversation specifically about masculinity and manhood, not really about his, his salad dressing company. But you can check out more about that in the description below. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Review it. Message me on Instagram if you like it. All that stuff on how to do that will be in the outro. All right, John, I'm so excited to uh, have you with me today on the Imperfect Pod, where you know we talk about masculinity and manhood, and I know that you have quite a bit of experience in this realm. But before we get into it, I just always ask my guests, who is one person, dead or alive, that you would have over for dinner, and what would you cook for them? Wow. So I think I'd have George Washington over. And what would I cook for him? I would want to cook something that they didn't have back then. I'm trying to think what that might be. But uh, that would be a good thing. I'd have to put some more thought into that. But you know what? I'd probably cook him a big steak and uh, just kind of have an all-American meal. Just like let's have a steak and a salad and maybe a potato or some or something. He'd probably have trouble eating the steak, actually, seeing as how he had really bad teeth. I guess it would depend on how old he was. <laughs> I think he started off with teeth. I don't think he ended up with teeth. <laughs> that's. I think that's most people. Yeah. <laughs> or at least a fair portion of them. That's why you always got to floss. Yeah. But yeah, I'd have George Washington over. The more I learn about the guy, the more fascinated I am by him. And in those conversations, or if you have him over for dinner, what kind of conversations would you talk about? What would be the themes that you'd want to hear from him? You know... I would want to, and this is no kidding, I've actually thought about this. I would want to just talk to him as another dude. You know how a lot of times people, when they get in the presence of someone who 
is an idol or something. They'll sit there and just hammer away at the questions. Hey, what were you thinking when you did this? What, you know, what kind of equipment do you do? Do you use for this? What are you doing? I just want to have a conversation with him as a dude. Hey, what's your favorite book? You know, what's your favorite thing to do? You know, when you're walking around on your farm, what, what's your, you know, what's your favorite activity? Stuff like that. Really kind of basic, normal stuff. That's what I would want to talk to him about. And then we get into some of the other things. Yeah, I think that's so true because even in in my life, like as I think about people that I really want to meet, you have all these set questions with them. But really, at the end of the day, they know that they're famous. They're asked questions by media all the time, and and most of the time, it's probably the same questions that we would want to ask just personally. And I think the side of conversation is one that they would like because it's more natural to them. They don't have to feel like they're on a performance. It's not like media. They just feel like they can be themselves. And that is a a luxury that they don't maybe get to feel all the time. So I totally agree with that aspect. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to tell a real brief story to illustrate something about famous people. I had a, a friend who was coaching for the uh, Islanders. And so I used to get to go to their, their skates when they'd go to come to uh, DC. He'd invite me over. Went over and I go over there with another guy who was the chief uh, USA hockey guy in our region. And one day he had told the goalie, who was a guy named Rick DiPietro. DiPietro? DiPietro. Uh, yeah. He had told Rick about me because I was in the Marine Corps and all this kind of stuff. Well, it turns out Rick's dad had was a Vietnam vet who had been a door gunner on Hueys, which, well, I am a Huey pilot now, but I wasn't a Huey, Huey pilot then. I was a Cobra guy. But he became super interested in me and he wanted to meet me. And so at the practice, it was just really funny to me. Of course, he's kind of a young kid anyway, but, you know, he's like 20 years old, but he wanted to meet me. And so my buddy brought him over and said, hey, you know, here's the you know Marine dude I was telling you about. And he's like, oh, man, it's such an honor to meet you. And it was cool because I realized that all these people who are famous, they're just people, too. You know, and they have people that they respect and looked up, look up to for various reasons. His big connection was the fact that his dad had been a Vietnam vet. I just thought I'd share that. That was kind of interesting to me at the time, and I thought you might find it interesting. No, I, I think that's so true, and and that's funny because we were just talking about hockey before this this uh, before actually pressing record. So that's funny that it was topical and it fit into that theme. Uh, but it's true. One of my one of my closest friends, you know, when we were in university together, we went to networking sessions, and you get fancied by all these VP and all these titles. And the best advice he gave me is that he's like, Luke, everyone is human first. And then they have the title. And that really just changed my perspective on on how I view people. And that's why I, with podcasting, I'm very comfortable reaching out to people that have really great titles. You know, for my work every day, I'm reaching out to VPs and, and SVPs and C-level executives of Fortune 500 companies. And it's it's always great that I that I talk to them because it's just a very normal conversation. It's almost like a thirty minute call that takes them away from the grind of the day. And it's a, it's kind of a distraction from work. And I feel like they always value that in a lot of ways. Which it's just fascinating how it works. If you can find that one emotional connection with someone, it really changes everything. Which is I feel like what you highlighted. I think the subject of your of your podcast is intriguing to a lot of people because. And we'll probably get into some of this later, but I, I think um, writ large, a, a lot of people in general are recognizing that modern manhood is maybe lacking or maybe under attack. And so I'll bet you they find it interesting. I certainly did 
And I've been looking forward to this conversation since since we last talked, just based on the subject matter and what we're discussing. And all I, I wish you all the luck, but I'm super glad that uh, that you're able to connect with some of those folks that are, you know, and, and you're getting good reception from them. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you so much for that compliment. I was very, I'm very excited about talking with you too. You know, with your background in the Marine Corps and the military, I guess it, it, it is always a fascinating conversation because we, there's so many convoluted ideas about what that is and what that means to people. And people have definitions that the army is toxic. People also say, you know, it's, it's the utmost epitome of men because it's serving your country, it's serving your fellow man. So I, I'm kind of interested in hearing on your perspective on on the criticism that is kind of going on in modern manhood, because I, I feel like at some points I there is reason to attack it, but not as much as it should be or is. And then there also is that concept of modern masculinity that needs to be held and embraced and promoted. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear your opinion on that. Yeah. So obviously you could write volumes upon volumes of books on this very subject, but to the criticism, I think that some of the modern day critics have not fully thought through their criticism. And this is not specific to, to the Marine Corps or to the military. Certainly there are a lot of misconceptions out there about the military in general, particularly the Marine Corps. But I'll start by, I'll couch the conversation by saying, I think a lot of modern day critics of anything that um, is highly masculine, see it as part of a, they, they view these things, whether it's the military or, you know, sports or just general styles of leadership, that they view it as part of some patriarchal hierarchy that is oppressing everyone else. And so it's, it's, I think it's very, very important to have a point of departure that is correct. So it, it would be a fallacy to say that we live in a, in, in a patriarchal hierarchy where there's men at the top and they oppress everybody else and they've been doing it for centuries. We have to remember, we have got to view history through a clearer lens, a more clear lens, and not color of that lens with everything we know now. We have to remember that, I'll say... 120 years ago, men and women were striving together to survive. Our hierarchy of needs was survival. We had large families, not only because we needed labor on the farm, but we had large families because kids died. They didn't make it to adulthood. And so men and women strove together to survive over the centuries, over the millennia. And the construct that we came up with that we're still sort of to a much lesser degree today, that construct is what worked. You know, the entire world was trying to kill us for thousands or at least thousands of years. And we are all here today and our electricity works. And, you know, we're talking over this incredible telecom network and all this because that worked in the past and they survived. So I just... That's a really important important point of departure. We tend to view things through the lens of our own experiences without considering what was actually going on in the past. So directly to your criticism of the military. So first of all, a lot of it's simply false. I kind of thought when I joined the Marine Corps, I kind of thought that, you know, you watch movies and things and uh, you see guys that are acting a certain way, maybe not putting a whole lot of thought into, into stuff. And it's just kind of this you know, I'm going to bang my head against this brick wall until it gives way, sort of super masculine, not so intelligent figure. 
that is the stereotypical Marine or Army guy. I was slightly surprised to find the most intelligent, flexible, most entrepreneurial minds I've ever encountered in the Marine Corps of all places. And it wasn't until I was, I had been in a couple of years before I really realized that the creativity that is required to do what we do is pretty incredible. And it's not that unlike a jazz musician or a painter, somebody who has to use certain tools to create something. I was talking to someone one time several years ago, and I happened to mention that I was a musician. I'm a violinist and guitar player and a few other things. And I can draw and things like that. Anyway, we're having some, for some reason, we're having a conversation. They go, oh my God, I can't believe you're, you spent your career in the Marine Corps. You're such an artist. And this was, I was actually a civilian. I had been retired already. And I said, um, well, look, think about it this way. We have a set of tools that we have to use. And in my case, it was uh, H1 Whiskey Cobra. And we have to figure out what is presented to us by the enemy. And we have to come up with a way to utilize our weapons, to utilize various things, to neutralize them or destroy them or whatever it is we're tasked to do. And there's a tremendous amount of creativity, tremendous amount of flex. You know, we call a lot of audibles, a lot of audibles, because things change. They change on the go. And so there's a lot of creativity there. So that's yet another misconception. Oh, you just, you know, somebody's just told to go do something and you go and execute like an automaton. Uh, and that is absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. In fact, it's closer to 180 degrees out from the truth. It's a very creative, very flexible, very fluid organization. So anyway, that's just dispelling dispelling that criticism uh, when it comes to the actual manhood part, what's often criticized as being toxic manhood. I think a lot of that comes from observations of... Uh, you know, videos that get out of young kids, and I say kids, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, doing frat house type stuff, and they have to be in uniform, you know, uh, the ceremony of pinning each other's uh, jump wings on, or that one, that one was a big one, but I think it was back in the 90s, where it showed them punching the wings, and, you know, the guy doesn't have a shirt on, but his wings are stuck to his chest, and they're, they're pounding away at him. Uh, you see a lot of that and you're like, okay, yeah, they're a bunch of young jackasses and uh, they're doing what young jackasses do. If you went to a, you know, if you went to a frat house on a campus, you'd see very similar behavior. You know, it wouldn't be in uniform. So just because they're, they're Marines doesn't mean that the young ones don't do stupid things. And of course, there's there's been a lot of attention, at least in the past, put on those kind of items that pop up because they, they're in the news because as soon as a Marine does something that's bad or that's not very savory, it's in the news. And we have over the years been very aware of that. But as to the culture, I have found that overall and on measure, uh, the culture is actually very thoughtful and very uh, pretty introspective. A lot of adherence to, not adherence to, a lot of attention is paid to the honor of the institution. Uh, the honor of the Marine Corps. There is a tremendous amount. Somebody one time equated it to Catholic guilt, which I wouldn't know anything about because I'm not Catholic, but I was describing how we, we learn a lot. Of, the Marine Corps learns a lot about their uh, 
their past, and there's a lot of pressure put on present-day Marines to carry on the honor of those who have gone before us. That's how we refer to them. It's those who have gone before us. So we think about Iwo Jima and Okinawa and Bella Wood and you know some of these iconic battles from the past, and those guys are no longer here to carry on the honor of the Corps, and so we have to do it for them. And so there's a lot of pressure, uh, and people are thoughtful about that. Nevertheless, again, bring it back to the, the, the initial question. My experience in the Marine Corps did not bear out the criticism that you often hear of toxic, man, uh, toxic uh, masculinity or you know, just a bunch of stupid Marines sitting around eating crayons. None of that wore out at all. Yeah, I think it is interesting because when you look at the Marine Corps and, and the Army or and the military as a whole, like they do teach you a lot of things that are really good about humans. And it's things like integrity, discipline, accountability, fitness and health and, and decision making. Like I think those are a lot of the key traits that happen and that a lot of people need. And which is why I believe, you know, I'm not much of a military mind myself. I don't really, I'm more of a pacifist, I would guess you would say, in my behavior and in my, just the way I think. But I've always understood that people can go to it to help create structure to their lives. And I think that is a really good way of doing it. And, you know, you look at any male environment, whether it's sports or even like a church youth group, like there are going to be behaviors that are unhealthy because when you like I Terry Crews has a book called Manhood and in it he talks about how if you get any group of four guys together no matter how brilliant they are they're going to do something stupid like that is kind of just how it works and I would say that's almost every group of people like groupthink literally is a thing and it is powerful and that's why I'm like in terms of the patriarchy I understand the criticisms that happen and going back to the first point of your question is putting history into context and of course, now, like we're seeing, we're, we're seeing more women get into the workforce now and that's great, but it's going to take time for them to become senior vice presidents, VPs of different industries. And so I think a lot of this will heal itself over time. There has to be intentional fixes to that kind of patriarchy environment that, that we're seeing, but at the same time, history hasn't caught up to now, like that, it just hasn't caught up. There still has to be that intent, but that's kind of how I see it is exactly as you said, putting history into context. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so the issue becomes uh, for our present day, there's been a lot of research done on this. So you mentioned uh, women becoming uh, CEOs or whatever higher position, but there's been a, or getting into certain professions. There's been a tremendous amount of research done over about the past 30 years, particularly in the Scandinavian comp- countries where they have tried to equalize the opportunity as much as possible for men and women. And what they found is that they actually ended up maximizing the differences between the sexes, depending on preferences, more natural things. So at the extremes of the bell curve, you find a lot more men interested in things like laying bricks and uh, becoming firemen and some of those more traditional things. And then on the other side, you have a, a lot more women becoming nurses and teachers and things of that nature that are more traditionally women. And it wasn't the outcome that anybody expected. And, and, and this, is not, this is not one study. Over the course of uh, about 30 or more years at this point, it wasn't what anyone expected, but it's what happened. And I think it kind of gets back to, uh, you know, we have 
first of all, it doesn't mean that a woman can't be just as good of a leader, just as good of a fighter pilot, just as good of a, anything as a man, just on measure. When we talk about bell curves and we talk about distributions, you know, we're going to find that there are the top, the thick part of the curve is going to oftentimes overlap, but they're not going to match up directly between men and women. They're just, they're just not, we're kidding ourselves. And then when we start, so if we want to engineer outcomes, now you're talking about, about something completely different that I'm not entirely sure uh, we really want. I think we want equality of opportunity and let the chips fall where there may, uh, vice saying, we've got to make uh, all the firefighters uh, 50% women. And then what do you do? You know, do you, do you force women to come fight, become firefighters? Or do you just not hire men? Or, you know, how do you do all that? Outcome versus opportunity. Uh, at any rate, it is, it is very interesting, but it does kind of get back to the natural roles that we fell into over the, the millennia to survive. And, and obviously they still remain those, those uh, biological differences. And, you know, you talked about Ted, Cru- Ted Cruz. You talked about uh, Terry Cruz's book. You know, putting four guys together, absolutely. It wasn't that long ago before somebody in the tribe had to think it was a good idea to go attack a herd of, of stampeding buffalo with a spear. Somebody had to think that was a good idea. I mean, really. So who's the idiot that's going to do it? It's going to be a young guy. You know, he's going to stand up and say, I think that's a good idea. You know, and he and his boys go out and you know, maybe only two of them come back, but by gosh, they, they bring back some meat for the tribe. And we see it borne out in, in uh, car insurance. You know, think of, you know, think about how much you pay for car insurance until you're either married or 25 years old as a young male. You know, think about how, how the prison population is, how much of that is male and how, much of, how many of them are young because they're doing stupid things. The mind is not quite there when it comes to... Um, assessing risk versus reward. But I would simply submit that, and I don't pretend to be an anthropologist or anything, but I would simply submit that it had utility in antiquity for the survival of the tribe and the survival of the species. Yeah. And going to that point about, because I totally agree with you on, on a lot of that, going to the point where you said, you know, young men aren't able to do that risk and reward thing. And I think that is so true, not to give them an escape for making dumb decisions, but I I think that male mentorship is really important in young men's lives. And do you believe that? And how important do you think it is? I think it's as important as it can be. Whatever the maximum importance is, that's it. Absolutely. They need guidance from males who are older, who have navigated life to a certain point so that they know how to go from where they are to at least where their mentor is. My dad and my grandfather uh, provided really good examples uh, for me. When I got into the Marine Corps, I had really good examples that were closer to me in time. So maybe they were only a rank above me. And I had a very defined, you know, I could pick a mentor or two or three and say, hey, these guys have been successful. I really want to go there and do what they're doing, how do I get there? And I could ask them, I could talk about them. They would pull me aside and say, hey, here's what you need to do. I just think it's infinitely important. And the difference between, so dad, right? Dad's 20 or 30 years older than the kid. And he's 
separated by not only his role as a father, but he's separated by his just generationally a mentor, particularly within the service. And, and this happens in all the military services. A mentor is often separated actually by very little time. He may only be three or four or five years older than the, the guy he's mentoring, but that time difference, that experience difference is enough to have a very clear path to paint a very clear path for the, the guy who was being mentored. At any rate, back to your question, it's infinitely important. And I think it's infinitely important that young men have not only father figures who are older, but younger mentors who are closer to them temporally so that they can grab on, kind of grab onto their belt, you know, and, and follow, follow the path. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. And to follow up that question, um, this is something that I've been struggling with a lot is should young men be asking specific men to be their mentors or should older men know that a young man in their life needs a mentor? Like what is your perspective on that? Yeah, my perspective is is it's the responsibility of the older, older guy because – and I base this off of my own experience which is, of course, in the Marine Corps. I'm going to tell you a little quick story. I wrote an article about this. I had been in the squadron for a while. Uh, we were having a, a test on, uh, I think, some weapon systems or something like that. It was going to be pretty tough. I studied up for it, and I was kind of a mid-level guy. I, I don't even think I was an instructor pilot yet, but I, I was doing well in the squadron and being successful. We were about to have a test. There was a group of young guys who had come in. We took the test. I made like, you know, a 98 or 100% or whatever on it. Uh, these other guys really did poorly. And the tactics instructor, the tactics officer, who was a guy who was giving us the test, gave us back our papers. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. And uh, then he chewed everybody's rear end for these other guys who had, who had failed the test, sent them out, called me and a buddy of mine over to him. And then he, he ripped us harder than he did the guys who actually failed the test. And I'm like, whoa, hang on a second. I thought I was good. I made a 98 on the test. But the illustration, the lesson was that we, as guys who were a little bit ahead of them, had failed in our duty to them to go get them, reach out, teach them what they didn't know, and um, ensure their success. That was a real important lesson for me. And, and it was fairly early on in my, fairly early on in my Marine Corps career. It was a very unmistakable lesson, largely because, uh, it was a pretty good ask you and about uh, my responsibility to subordinates. And so I've always had that, that viewpoint ever since then that really is the, the, the responsibility of the guy who's already been there, the kid coming behind you, he may not even know what he needs to know. You've got to reach back and get him. That's something I've always been challenged with myself is because, you know, we see this idea that young men need to know and go out and get, that training, that mentorship, but we don't really always know who the best person to go to is. And we might have men in our lives, lives that, you know, they may reach out and we say no, like that is, that does happen quite a bit. But I think it also needs to be clear that they're reaching out They're They're literally saying like, Hey, I think you need to improve in this area. I'd love to mentor you and really be a guiding light in that life. Because when I think about it, um, you know, I grew up in the church and, and 
with that, um, you know, no system's perfect, but the, the leadership that I saw from men in the church, because both my youth, pa- youth pastors kind of like just gave up on us and, and it, it left it like a dark hole, right? Well, like they, I wouldn't say like, just give up. That's probably a bit dark and harsh. They had personal lives and, and they were kind of going awry. And with that, we became not really a priority. And so that mentorship wasn't visible in the church, which is where we're supposed to see a lot of it. And I think that that has always hurt me in regards to male mentorship and knowing who to reach out to, having the confidence to reach out to them. But then now, because we live such a digital life, um, it's always kind of hard to see who needs help. It's hard to be in those physical spaces and find those people and then say, I need help. And, and I think you need a business mentor, you need a personal mentor, you need a relationship mentor. Like I think not, there's more than one coach for every kind of aspect of your life. But I just find as a young, as a young man, it's, it's a lot harder to find mentors than you'd think. And it, it comes from both men need to be taught how to ask for mentorship and young, older men need to know when to reach out to younger men. Yeah. So what I, what I was going to say about that, so you mentioned the digital age and how hard it can be to connect, I have recently, believe it or not, you would think I, you'd think I would have thought of this before, or reached out to have. Anyway, so you mentioned business mentors. I was on a podcast for a guy named uh, James Van Pruyen, who has a podcast called uh, Veterans in Business. Just a super nice guy, really, really thoughtful individual. Well, he does this thing. And he, he invited me to it, invites me to it on a regular basis. It's a weekly thing where um, people get together and, and, and he calls it a virtual happy hour. And sometimes two or three people will show, show up. Sometimes four or five, six people will show up and just have conversations about various things. And I've met a tremendous number of really cool, thoughtful, smart people via that and i wonder what could be done and what is being done that's similar to that for young men and and maybe it's very specific maybe it's um bantam level hockey players maybe it's first year hockey coaches maybe it's i'm just using sports kind of as an example of of drilling down to to a, a certain age group or a certain interest, uh, you know, young male musicians. But the power of just Zoom, which I did not, I had never used Zoom before until last spring. First time I used Zoom, unbelievably powerful tool. I'm, I'm sitting in a rack. I'm talking to you right now. I, I just wonder, I'm sure the tool can be utilized in, in a super constructive way for young men, particularly as digitally savvy as they all are nowadays anyway i just simply throw that out there as a thought i i I had that experience with uh the the weekly meeting with james's group it's been very valuable for me and i can only imagine how much value you know a young man might get out of it who has a certain a certain interest or need no i think that's that's really true and i've been on there's, I know a man who I actually interviewed on my podcast, Clay, and he started to invite me to a men's group. And I've, I've gone to that a few times. Now with it being summer, it's a lot harder for me to kind of go to as 
you know, my nights get busier. But I thought that's a beautiful thing. He's using it to create a male community, kind of like a brotherhood is what he calls it, which I think is is a great term. And I just think it's so hard now because we just live in a world where young people don't really want to go out that much and meet new people. And we stay confined to our beds. We're all becoming kind of just introverts or not very good at socializing. Um, we're losing a lot of those human traits. And then wh- the one thing I don't like about my generation is that we seem to attribute that blame to someone else. We don't take accountability for the fact that we're not socially etiquette beings anymore. Like that's kind of a, a, a pain point that I have with my own generation is you can learn those human skills. It's no one's fault that you don't have them. You just don't go outside. Anyways, that's kind of another topic for another, another time. But we've we've kind of lost a lot of those traditional hubs of learning about each other. And, and because, you know, even though I'm not religious myself anymore, I believe religious communities are really good at doing that. They're, that is a key role of them is that they bring people together who have gone through pains they welcome people in to talk about that thing those those things meanwhile they totally segregate other parts of society which is why i don't really like the institution but i I, there's there's still a lot of good that they do within that realm whether it's married couples young men etc uh you're absolutely right i think if you look back again going back to history i think if you look back the church and let's just say the church and I mean the one that physically sat in the center of town. It was a gathering place. It was a place where they talked about politics, where they wrestled with ideas. It was not just a place where they would come to go to Sunday school, sing some hymns, and hear the preacher preach a, a sermon. It was a whole social center, and it encompassed a lot more than just whatever whatever religious bent they, they may have been of. And you are absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head where losing some of those institutions, or at least they're becoming much less pervasive in our society. Uh, And we're losing it to, well, here's a great example, youth sports. Youth sports, half the time, whether it's soccer, baseball, hockey, I don't know about football, but you're gone all weekend. Every doggone weekend, you know, you'll have, you'll have game on Saturday, game on Sunday. Family might have to travel to, you know, might have to travel a hundred miles every day to go to some game completely taken up now that's a whole nother social network but so here's what i lament that i remember from being a kid in a very small town i remember a place called staples drugstore and uh we used to go in there on occasion and they served food and stuff but there would be all these old dudes sitting in there and they would be having these knockdown, drag out political conversations. And like the mayor of the town would drop by and stuff, you know? It was really, in retrospect, how healthy that is, you know, to be able to talk directly to the, the, the town council or the county council or whoever, to talk directly to the mayor in a, in a little informal setting like that and, and to be able to uh, have an argument. And when I say argument, I mean it in the most classic Socratic sense of, of just being able to have a dialogue. Uh, and I wonder if, because our society has changed from kind of that ex- society where we exchanged a lot of ideas face-to-face to a more digital, more arm's length society, we are less civil with each other. That's an observation I've made uh, as well. And, and I'm only 54 years old. It's not like I'm 80 years old. 
you know, right up into the nineties, gosh, probably late in the nineties, we were pretty civil in our conversations and our arguments with each other. And, uh, with the advent of social media and the, the exponential speed at which information moves around the globe now, we have become disconnected. I, do, I agree. And uh, we have become, as a result, less civil. And I wonder if it's not only just a social thing, but it has to do with the way information is presented to us. And we get kind of the headline, but we don't really get the depth. Yep. It's a lot of width. Yeah, we're yeah we're we're like a inch deep and a mile wide, and we don't fully understand exactly what we are talking about, even though we think we do. When I was in college, I was really fortunate. I look back on this as something that was extremely fortunate, and yet at the time I didn't think it was. So I went to a small small school, and I was majoring at the time. One of my many majors was religion and philosophy, and we were in a class that I think it was a New Testament class because we were talking about Jesus. So it must've been like a New, T- New Testament class. At any rate, the professor deliberately threw out something that he knew was going to be super controversial, right? And he challenged everybody's belief in the room by, by doing that. He, he threw out something like uh, Jesus denied his own divinity right here in this scripture or something. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? You're crazy. And he just put it back on us. And he said, well, prove it to me. Show me. Show me your argument. And so it was in that that environment that I learned, at least somewhat, to formulate a dispassionate fact-based argument, which is very valuable. And I'm not so sure we do that anymore. Yeah, I I have a lot of thoughts about this too. And and one of the things I say is that citizen journalism is one of the best things to ever happen to this world, but it's also one of the worst. And with that, you know, citizen journalism is great because it calls out institutions that are corrupt and have been doing things the wrong way and creates different perspectives and really allows a lot of the story to come full circle. And they call out things like, you know, if you think about cops or even journalism as a whole or politicians, I think citizen journalism has done a great thing in that respect. At the same time, it is that whole a lot of width, not a lot of depth, because these people aren't trained to give the full depth of a situation. They kind of just take a video or let let out a 260 character tweet. And with that, that is how then we react to that emotionally. And we live in these echo chambers in social media of who we follow. And, and that is a problem. But you know, when you go to the streets, and you actually have these conversations with people, you realize that's not really the way like, I find that if I have a conversation about masculinity with six people, it's very much different than if I have a conversation one on one with each of those six different people, like it's a completely different conversation, we're able to share our, our thoughts better. It's the same thing as when you have four guys in a room, stupid stuff is is done when you have seven people in a room conversing over one topic emotions get way too high. Like it very rarely I feel boils over those emotions in a one-on-one conversation, which is why I like doing the podcast version of this because it allows for, you know, back and forth, back and forth between you and I, a lot of the people I talk to, I don't agree with a lot of their opinions and they know that I'll let them know. I'll, I'll make them aware. And it's always very civil with that. You know, as we go through this political time right now in America, with the Black Lives Matter movement and whatnot, there's some things I completely disagree with, and there's some things I I totally agree with. And, you know, within that was one that I saw really well is that not every problem that 
people face is as emotionally captivating to me or my emotions aren't as deeply embedded into it because you know I'm not black I don't know what that is so for me it's not a personal conversation it's a very much I can be objective because my emotions aren't involved but for for African American men or women it's it's much more emotionally charged with that we have to understand it of course but kind of going back to that civil discourse of four guys being in a coffee bar like I think we still have that in a lot of ways and social media just takes the clips that are the most aggressive and posts it and those get viral. So we believe that that's the way people interact. But I always have to remind myself that when I have those conversations with people, it's much more like in the coffee shop for people. And, you know, one of my future goals in life is to actually open up cafes and hostels where that conversation is like the main theme of bringing people together and actually creating that civil discourse in a lot of ways and and bringing back those those public spheres i guess of conversation i think that is a fantastic goal to have i've recently really begun to so really spawned by by all of the um, extreme all of the extremes here recently since april time frame when things started to get tense and uh, of course, we ended up with riots and all that kind of business. I've really tried to kind of pay attention to where we are, how we got there. And I mean, it's not, frankly, if you think about it, what is going on now is not all that different than what was going on during the founding of the country. The difference is, of course, the ideology that's that's on the, I'll call it the violent side, you know, the ones that are doing the the looting and all that sort of stuff, the, the negative things we're seeing. But I think it's a very noble, not only noble, but necessary goal to try to bring back some sort of a localized civil discourse. So I got to thinking, what, what's, what is it that I can do, right? What can I do? And of course, I can come on podcasts like this and maybe, you know, maybe some people will see it, think that something I says makes sense. But I sort of come down to fix myself. What is my, what is my world? What do I touch on a daily basis? No, I don't need to get a TV show. I don't need to write a book. I don't need to become a politician necessarily. You know, I don't necessarily have to do any of those things. What I can probably do to help more than anything is to one, be a good man, fix yourself, recognize that I am an idiot, that I, in the grand scheme of things, will never gain an ounce of wisdom in comparison to what is out there, right? I just, I do not have time on this planet to read all the books and study all the science and all that sort of stuff. Recognize my shortcomings. Recognize that the, the, the things I touch in my own world, whether it's the people I lead and how I lead them, uh, whether it's my family, neighbors, that's where I think we're going to have the most impact if everyone would do it. But I have thought about, you know, so a lot of this, a lot of the, getting back to the civil discourse, a lot of us tend to look so much to the very top. We skip over town councils and mayors and county councils and state representatives and all these levels of, of that really affect as a citizen. That's what affects your life more than anything, right? But we tend to go direct to, the federal level, which is really the the piece that on a day-to-day -day basis has the least effect on, on your life. 
you know, what are your property taxes? What's your local schools like? You know, uh, how much uh, police and fire service do you have? You, you know, what are your local gun laws? What are your what are your local policies on various things? You know, I think that's a super important thing to recognize that we have disengaged from our local governments and those traditional local places where ideas would come together. And we look way too much to this super high level uh, national federal uh, institution. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because um, I actually watched a video on YouTube recently by Hassan Minaj, uh, who does the Patriot Act. I'm not sure if you've have heard of it. It's a pretty big Netflix TV show now, but he talks, there's an episode he does about local news and how those are really important in the manufacturing of you know, your city or your town um, and how that news is some of the most unique news because you see the same story on on federal news being reported across every federal station, but it's really the news that impacts your community the most that affects you the most. And it's the same as what you mentioned with town halls, city halls, is that that is kind of what more inhibits or promotes your daily life uh, a lot more. So I thought that was really profound. And then kind of going back to the topic of civil discourse and and whole social media is that where that's where we see this term that you taught to me uh schadenfreude where i feel like that is something that is hugely popular amongst social media right now and you know i've read over the term now but since you're the one that taught it to me why don't you kind of share a little bit about what it means yeah so the the word schadenfreude is a german word that means taking pleasure in someone else's uh failure or discomfort and uh there is an english word but the German word is actually easier to pronounce than the, the English word. I can't remember what it is. At any rate, um, yeah. So it's it's like gloating. It's it's uh, you know, oh, that guy got what's you know due, you know, what's due him. Now sometimes it's not a bad thing. You know, at the end of a horror film and the villain gets what's coming to him, uh, you know, it's not so bad to to have that feeling then. But as you were alluding to on. When, when it comes to politics, when it comes to just stupid arguments on Facebook and stuff, you know, people just want to win and they want to see the other guy get punished. And we're actually seeing a lot of that in the national discourse now. A tremendous amount of that, the, taking pleasure in the discomfort and failure uh, of someone else. So let's just take let's just take as an example, President Trump, love him or, or hate him, regardless of what your position is. He's the American president and everybody really ought to it's really not in your interest to to have the guy fail because when he fails, the country fails, and when the country fails, we fail. So that's just one one example. But we do see it in our in particularly in our national politics where we see people on TV just gloating over you know somebody getting convicted and sent to jail or you know or over somebody else's professional getting professionally destroyed because they made a, a silly comment you know five years ago. So I will go on further to say that uh, Arthur Schopenheimer, a philosopher, stated that uh, to harbor schadenfreude is diabolical. And that was part of a larger quotation. But um, it has been, since I read that and learned that, it's been very instructive to me to check myself, because it is human nature, to check myself when I begin to feel that and go, hold on a second. That's that's not uh, a proper thing to be feeling. Uh, so here's an example. Today, unfortunately, we lost. Uh, oh my gosh, the civil rights leader, not Al Sharpton, Thomas Riley, wasn't it? 
gosh, that doesn't ring well. Um, no, that's not it. He was a congressman. Anyway, he was 80 years old. He passed away. He was a guy that was uh, that was right there with Dr. King in the in the civil rights movement. And he died today. And people have different opinions on him. In my view, he was somebody that that really uh, hijacked Dr. King's movement and, and used it for his own to enrich himself. And and frankly, I don't think did a lot of good for the people he was espousing to serve. All that said, he was a human being. And, and I don't know, and I didn't know the guy. And I'm seeing already, I've seen a, a lot of, of things on, uh, on social media, just people coming out and blasting him. And on the other side, people coming out to make him a saint. He wasn't a saint. He wasn't the devil. He was a dude who, you know, for all I know, was doing his level best to, to try to serve the country. And yet, you know, we lost him today. And um, there's a lot of churn about him. But back to the term of Schadenfreude, it would be very easy, you know, for me to be diabolical and shit. Oh, well, good riddance. I'm glad he's gone. You know, I mean, what a horrible thing to say about anybody, particularly considering that there's completely, even if he was a complete charlatan, that he's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got grandkids, probably, you know, he's got a whole family there who are, are hurting today because they've lost their, whatever the relation was, they've lost. That's just something from the today that kind of speaks to that. Yeah. John Lewis is his name. John Lewis. I got the first name right, but not the, not the, yeah. not the second one. No, I, I totally agree. And it's, and it's something that, um, you know, I always have to remind myself too, when I think about, you know, as a Canadian and I think about Trump, it makes me very angry as a, as a individual to see his leadership style at the same time, when I see something like, uh, Jordan Peterson and, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Jordan Peterson, but I know he, he does a lot of conversations. A lot of young men look up to him and use his arguments. And so I make sure that I watch his videos and understand what he's saying so that I can have conversations with people that really listen to him. So, you know, I, I have, I do the civil discourse myself. I, I don't just preach it. I, I do practice listening to the other side, but I know that he was sick really recently and his wife was sick and, you know, there's people that were celebrating his sickness. And I'm like, how can you be a mental health advocate and praise the sickness of someone who is struggling severely because of mental health because of their wife dying like that is despicable behavior to me no matter who you are no matter what you think is your right to wish death upon that person or hope that they don't recover like that to me that is disgusting behavior and all you do is lose the you lose all credibility in your argument of being against Jordan Peterson, because at that point, you're just biased to a level of delusion almost and, and disgust. And so that's why I think this term is really credible and really great right now is we're seeing this type of behavior being shared against, you know, black people who are Republicans in nature and, and kind of disagree with the Black Lives Matter organization as a movement. We're seeing this term really thrown around or this, I guess, this ideology, this belief really present in a lot of cases right now because it's like if if you're not with us you're against us it's if uh, an eye for an eye like it's that kind of mentality and you know i I don't see how that as a human society progresses us further to experience that kind of pleasure in someone else's pain which is why i think the term is is so beautiful springboarding springboarding off of that you kind of touched on it for a minute 
I think in I think today we have had a disconnect. So there is an ideology. So let's just take the leftists. We'll call them the hard left <laughs> in this ideology, which I think Jordan Peterson very accurately has described as as a weird marriage between postmodernist ideas of hierarchical stru- structures uh, based on identity vying for power, along with uh, uh, some Marxist ideas about oppressor oppressed. I think he's very, very correct in, in his assessment of that ideology. It is an ideology that is disconnected from any sort of authority. So it's, it, it brings in a nihilistic sort of an idea where, where nothing really matters, where there is no higher standard. So when I first was thinking about this, I was specifically thinking about America and our founding document, which is, of course, the Declaration of Independence and what it says in it where it says that we find these truths to be self-evident, that they, they were endowed by our creator. So the authority of the document, and if we go further back in history, we find that authority is always drawn from something higher. So the divine right of kings, the kings were always, that's why there was always such a struggle between the Catholic church and various kings, right? The kings would want to do something, but the church would put a, a stop on them due to the right of the king drawing his power from God, from through the church. So that's how the church became so unbelievably powerful. But I, I was thinking about this whole movement and how we've disconnected from, from any concept of higher authority and natural rights. And it's just an interesting conversation to have. And there's also the element of, of how you view history. Uh, just in the 20th century, there was, you know, there have been hundreds of millions of lives ruined by essentially that ideology, you know, whether you start in 1917 in Russia with the USSR and everything that happened after that with the gulags, et cetera, et cetera, you know, Cambodia, Vietnam, North Korea, China, tremendous number of law, lives lost and knowledge destroyed based off an, a similar ideology. And yet here we are with uh, very large portions of, the, of our American population willing to bow down to this. And so I was thinking a lot about how we, how we got here. I think it's been very incremental where we've let some things go over the years. And uh, ultimately, we've gotten to where all of a sudden a, an ideology, which we were 100% against just back in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, and yet here we are. Uh, and we're having to have a conversation about it, cu- coupled with the failure or the certain institutions coming under attack you know, things like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, all being greatly restricted over the years uh, by social pressures, largely. So it's an interesting place that we are at right now. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though, that um, like with with the kings and the institutions and, and what we talked about earlier is that a lot of what we're doing right now is questioning those institutions. And even when I think back to the Declaration of Independence, you know, it says that we, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We were talking about putting history in context earlier within that time realm, you know, blacks weren't equal to, to whites. So, which is why I think it's almost fair to, to question a lot of these things is because if the institution in the declaration is, is based in a time where lives weren't equal, what to say that all men are created equal seems almost like an empty promise in a lot of ways. Like, I guess that that is kind of where I see the point of a lot of the current conversation. But at the same time, I do agree that 
you know, Marxism isn't the way. I do think that Jordan Peterson has great points about coming against a lot of the identity politics that are happening. Because do I believe that policies should be made about how people feel or respond or or emotionally react to things? Not at all. Because at that point, what is the answer to anything? You know, I think it's it's really, you hear a lot of people say a lot of people that are pretty smart and well-respected that, you know, the only person in control of your emotions are yourself. And that is true. That isn't to say that, um, you know, someone can't have a responsibility to make sure that your feelings aren't hurt. At the same time, to, to generate policies around that conversation is pretty dangerous or to, to create policies that are based around identity can be pretty dangerous as well. But I think that's why when it says that all men are created equal and equality for all men wasn't a thing, both for gender and race, I think that's where a lot of the problems come in is because it's like, well, that's that institution is based on a lie or a phrase that they say they believe, but wasn't actually true. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a fair conversation to have. And that's something that would be really, uh, really good to have a conversation with actually a friend of mine, a good friend of mine named Carl Harbuck, who is one of the finest minds I know, particularly with it when it comes to the Constitution, the history of the Constitution. Of course, that was written by Jefferson. And Jefferson, despite owning slaves, was an abolitionist in his mind and was really keen to get rid of the institution of slavery, as it is often referred to in America, because he saw it as the great evil. And he foretold that this would be the thing that would rip the country apart, which it very nearly did only a couple of generations later. I think you got to take the viewpoint of moving the ball down the field. I, I, I really do. And, and that's, that might sound callous to somebody. But again, think about human history as being, if you think about it as being this long game of, of improving ourselves just a little bit, you know, I think we did okay. You know, we, we put that stake in the ground of all men are created equal. We were the first ones to ever really do it, you know, to put that stake of ground and actually say it. And then eventually we've gotten there. I think we're pretty close to being there. I think now we're, we're having a lot of debate on about what that means. But yeah, to say it was a lie, I, I don't think it was a lie. And, and I think, I think, correspondence between the founders would, would probably bear that out. I think it was a political decision to ensure ratification of the, con- of the Constitution uh, at a time when we were literally fighting for the existence of the country. It was the lesser evil because otherwise we wouldn't have rat- ratified the Constitution. You know, there's no way Virginia or, you know, I don't, I don't even know who else was in play, but probably South Carolina and Georgia, you know, we're going to ratify that Constitution if, if slavery was not in it. So yeah, I think it's a fair conversation to say, again, I think you've got to really view history through a clear lens rather than one colored by our own situation today. Uh, but at, the, at that same time, we do have to recognize that at the founding of the country, we, we moved the ball down the field. We got a first down there. And then we, you know, we struggled in 1860. We kicked off the Civil War and we struggled again. We almost went out of existence. And I don't know if you'd call that getting a first down, but uh, we kind of got a first down because we got a second lease on life. You know, the, the, the union was preserved. Slavery was abolished, even though it wasn't uh, necessarily implemented the way it should have should have been. And we had a lot of inequity throughout the 20th century. Uh, but then, you know, in the 60s, Dr. King came along, along with a whole lot of others and uh, and moved the ball down the field again, got another first down. You know, so we can't expect to fix everything today. 
you know, when you go to the gym, if you go to the gym for nine hours in one day, you're going to be real sore, but you're not going to look a whole lot different the next day. If you take that same nine hours and stretch it out over, you know, dividing it up in 30 minutes or, or whatnot and stretch it out over 18 days at the end of 18 days, you may actually see a difference. So that's an analogy I use just to illustrate that I, I don't think we can change the entire world in a day that we just kind of keep getting first downs and we'll be all right. Unfortunately, now my opinion based on everything I know and what I'm observing is that we're actually regressing and that's okay. Maybe we take three steps forward and two steps back and then start moving forward again. We'll see. But anyway, that's, that's my opinion. That's my, my viewpoint and a very interesting question. I would love to have a longer conversation, uh, particularly with somebody who is really well educated on the constitution to be able to, and founding documents to be able to really flesh that out. Yeah. No, I think it's important and, and I totally agree. I'm not well-versed in history at all, but um, I know that that is uh, an issue that I've always had with, I guess, the phrasing of it. But I think this is a, a great place to kind of end the conversation with that analogy of uh, moving the ball down the field. I think that's a really good way of saying it, that nine hours uh, in one day doesn't do much, but 30 over 18 might do a lot more. I Yeah, I think this was a great civil discourse where we clearly kind of had conversations and disagreed on certain things, but we still did it in a very beautiful manner. And I appreciate that about uh, you, John. And I, yeah, I really think that that topic that in that conversation that we had about schadenfreude and citizen journalism, I think it all makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think it's huge. And likewise, like I said, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, just because that's something that I have, uh, having a, a very deep, thoughtful conversation is is a little bit rare now. I don't get to have that many of these conversations. So I've been looking forward to it for that reason and uh, greatly uh, enjoyed our time together and, and would look forward to another conversation anytime. Yes, me as well. Where we can get more into maybe actually, um, I know we talked a little bit about integrity and empathy and leading from that. So doing a kind of a follow-up conversation in the future um, would be really good. I just want to keep this one to under i think we're at an hour 15 right now so <laughs> i thought we were at like half an hour no kidding <laughs> anyway well hey brother i'll uh, i'll let you go then but uh really really enjoyed being on the show yeah thank you so much that means a lot and i appreciate the kind words and um you know in this last uh, few seconds by just allow you to promote yourself what you got going on in your life what you want people to pay attention to well, yeah, my, my name is John Curry, of course, uh, and uh, my wife and my wife Stacy and I started a company called Semper Savage, which is a uh, a uh, salad dressing and marinade company. And you can find us at uh, www.sempersavage.com. Just Google Semper Savage, and you're going to find us. It's a homemade salad dressing that we put into a bottle, all natural product, premium product, and uh, you know, hey, we are convinced that you're going to love it. So, obviously, I would love for you to go check out. Uh, that check out some of my articles on LinkedIn, uh, mostly on leadership. Anyway, yeah, that's it. Really enjoyed the conversation. Luke. Me as well, John. And uh, I hope you're well. I hope you uh, are healthy. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. All right. Great, Luke. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you everyone so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Imperfect Pod. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes. Um, you can do that by scrolling to the bottom of the feed and just giving it a rating or a review. Press the subscribe button. If you're on Spotify, press the follow button. Go to my Instagram at The Imperfect Pod. Message me there. I, I create a lot of little snippets and, and blurbs and quotes that you'll see there, as well as some other materials that uh, I'll be making throughout the week. But everyone, thank you again so much for tuning in. I'm really excited about next week's guest, Mike Cameron, where we kind of talk about hashtag not all men. And he's got a really interesting story about how his fiance actually was murdered by an ex. And I think it's a really powerful message that he shares next week that you're definitely going to want to tune back in and listen. So make sure to press that subscribe button. Make sure to press that follow button so you can uh, see it Wednesday morning. 